everybody, this is my boy, Martin Bridge, good friend of mine. What years now, huh? Yeah. Eight, uh, 10? Uh, yeah, getting close to 10 years. Yeah. And um, Martin did all of the artwork in the studio. And um, he's, uh, I'm going to let him do the majority of the talking here, but I wanted to give an introduction as to uh, why I wanted to sit down with him. He's one of the most uh, creative and inspiring people I know. Super great friend. He's, we've been through a lot together. He's helped me through a lot of times in my life. Um, uh, he's got a beautiful home up in Western Massachusetts that he built. Uh, he was the inspiration also between why I put in the, uh, the type of floors I did here because he <laughs> has them in his house. And I remember taking my shoes off when he first finished his house. I was like, whoa, <laughs> these floors are amazing. But um, yeah, Martin is a plethora of information. So um, I wanted to have him. This, this, this podcast I want to do as the stories of a community. So I have a couple of different ones that we do. I have like the Learn, Unlearn, Optimize, which is where I break down segments of like things about fitness or optimiz- optimization for your life and things like that. And then, but stories of a community is where I wanted to sit down um, with people I have a deep relationship with and get a snapshot of what their life is and um, was, is goals, things of that nature. And um, something that, you know, Rosalie, anyone in the future can have that, you know, it's like a, a timestamp of art that we put together. Um, so it has to not be anything specific, Martin, but I just wanted to sit down and really talk about you and like your whole story and like how you got into what you got into, you know, from <laughs> where, wherever you'd like to start. Okay. Well, that's, uh, you know, unfortunately this is one of the subjects that I feel I'm uh, a, a little more knowledgeable, but than uh, most, most other things, cause you know, uh, I guess we're all on a quest to figure out who we are, but, uh, but most of the time we have a pretty good perspective on what we've been through. So, yeah. um, but just, uh, I guess in, you know, how to, how to give a quick snippet of my life, what brought me to where I was in the world, where our lives intersected, I guess I, I mean, kind of got to start at the beginning. Um, yeah. I grew up along with my twin brother, Carl, who is also a great friend of yours. Yep. And, um, uh, we, we were the children of a teacher who was at a, uh, prep school just outside of Boston and, uh, growing up in this wonderful little oasis in the middle of this sort of banal, uh, suburb. And, uh, you know, we grew up being able to run around this 150 acre campus with fields and access to the Charles river. And, uh, you know, one of the other perks was art studios. Our dad would haul us up there. Uh, he basically founded the art department there. And he uh, would kind of keep us entertained by throwing material in front of us so he could get his work done. And uh, really, you know, that that set a lot of things in motion that, you know, have just been part of the, the very fiber of my being. Um, art has always been the primary vehicle for me to kind of interpret and translate the world around me and the world within me. Uh, and, you know, uh, my father is by no means the only other artist in the family who was kind of it's actually a little ridiculous when you look at how many of our uh, predecessors and, and uh, others in my my current generation are all involved in some sort of art or craft or at least have that be a really important part of their lives. Um, and uh, nature lovers as well. They're all, all, many of them would just 
like to be out in the outdoors. And that was something that uh, another love that my father gifted me with as a, a young person. And, um, and, you know, I kind of moved through my education, uh, lucky enough to attend that school, which was a really phenomenal environment um, and really helped me learn some of the, the best lessons in life in addition to a, a lot of great information and a great foundation to move uh, in my further education. But just uh, learning the values and discipline that I got, you know, from, uh, I was a wrestler in high school and I, my, uh, my coach is just about to be in, inducted into the, uh, the wrestling hall of fame there. Cool. And, um, you know, he, he, even though it's not, I don't do that anymore, but everything I learned about pushing myself, about challenging myself and knowing that I'm capable of more than I think I am yeah. really helped inform everything from what I do as, as a, as an artist or, you know, in, in any of my physical pursuits. And, uh, after college, I actually wound up returning to that same school where I began my career as an educator and really only, you know, five years there, it was very comfortable. And at the same time, I realized that I had spent 23 years of my life there and it was time to try something different. And, uh, I had recently been, uh, in the last few years of my time there, uh, become involved in the earth spirit community, uh, which, uh, is, um, really the, the heart of it now, some people who's founded by people who lived in the Boston area and really decided they wanted to get back to nature, get back to the land and moved out to Western mass and invited me out to, uh, a party where I got to walk around and enjoy their 135 acre farm and, uh, with multiple residences and little community dwelling. And, uh, you know, after <laughs> looking at that place while I was looking for a home in the Metro West Boston area, which was a depressing prospect for a teacher, uh, I was like, man, I think I'm, I'm looking in the wrong place. And I, uh, in 2001 moved out to Western Mass and uh, really just fell in love with the environment uh, just to be in a place that you, you can, you know, daily wake up and feel in intensely connected to the natural world. And at the same time, you know, uh, be surrounded by a, a relatively progressive culture and uh, not be completely cut off from uh, the the other parts of I mean I, I'm also I love the city and I love to be around that energy and 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 people and and art and and entertainment and all the other things that blossom where a lot of humans come together um, and where I'm at it's perfect location a couple hours I can be right back in Boston three hours in New York City so it's kind of like instead of being uh, somewhere in the middle of nowhere I like to describe it as nowhere in the middle of somewhere so, yeah. Um, and it was during my time, early time there that I, I got connected to Cosm and uh, Alex and Allison Gray, which is where our lives intersected. Yep. So, yeah. So what you got up to Cosm, didn't, didn't you put in some type of grant or something like that? Well, I'd been, I'd been working with them for years and just doing kind of like grunt labor, you know, I'm working the door since they were in the, the city when they're yeah 2004 is when I I got to so for everyone for everyone listening can you give them a little context on the 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 uh, chapel of sacred mirrors the exhibit what was in the city like the whole thing yeah absolutely 
So for uh, those of you who uh, are not familiar with the man's work, Alex Gray is uh, definitely considered one of the uh, masters in, uh, in well, particularly in, in, a, in the American visionary art movement, but really world, worldwide now. Um, and uh, he and his wife, who's also a phenomenal painter and uh, have been trying to create a church where art, well, they're not trying to, they have created it, excuse me. Let me correct that. It exists. It's awesome. Uh, they've, there have definitely been struggles with, with people saying a church that's celebrating the divine through art, that, that doesn't make sense. And they're like, yes, it does. <laughs> we're, we're celebrating the creative spirit and our, uh, you know, our, our creations are really about our reverence for whatever their, whatever label one wants to put for mystery, God, spirit, whatever. I remember at the end of the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors when I saw it in the city, mm -hmm. I believe if I remember correctly, the last one was a mirror and it was almost like me, right? So yeah. I was looking at myself as, as the creator. Yep. So I'm like, I've been created and I'm simultaneously the creator. So is it, to say it's a quote, a quote unquote church that worships the creator is also saying that like anything that is creative, it's, is it dogmatic in any sense for anyone that doesn't know, or how would you go about that? What do you think? Uh, I don't know that I can really answer that question, uh, in a way that I feel would, would, would reflect a ton of different opinions because one of the nice things about what they're presenting is that it's not highly dogmatic. They're not, they're not handing out a, a code of ethics uh, or a set of rules that they expect the people who come and celebrate their spirituality at this church uh, by. Um, so it's, it's much more universal in its approach. So, uh, but you know, some other people might feel differently about it. Like they have a particular message or agenda, but, but the piece that you mentioned was the last of the sacred mirror series mm -hmm. uh, is, is in fact a sandblasted <coughs> mirror where when you stand and look at it, you can see your body uh, in the same pose that all the prior uh, paintings have that we're just looking at different layers of the physical body or the, or the spiritual or energetic form. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you see this one where you see most of your body, but your head is just lost in light because mm -hmm. the, the texture, and then you just see the word God and these radiating lines. Yeah. So it's just a, a wonderful, uh, you know, uh, I, I, for me, it's a wonderful reminder that, you know, we are a create We're if there's a God that made everything, it made you and you're a part of that, That's that, right. that creation and, and you're reflecting aspects of divinity. So, yeah. The, um, what an amazing exhibit. Is it, is it up now up there? Uh, can you see no. it yet? Uh, yet? They're, they're getting damn close. When you look at the, the building of Entheon gallery to yeah. house these paintings permanently, they had, they had five years in a space in Chelsea that, uh, one year was just getting the, the space ready for the paintings. And then they were on display for, for four years and, it was time that for them to find their permanent home and they chose to settle 60 miles north along the Hudson in Wappinger Falls. And they've been slowly converting this old carriage house into this epic, epic space. And uh, when you look at the level of detail that they're putting in any, everything, you understand why it's taking so long. Uh, but yeah. it's, been, it's been nice to shift from 
uh, to get back to where we, where, where we met, like to shift from, you know, being a doorman and someone watching the paintings to make sure they stayed safe when they had hundreds or, or thousands of people around them, uh, to, you know, then, then joining as part of their, their teaching staff essentially. Yeah. So Uh, I I don't know if I ever told you, I went, I went with, uh, Danielle Mason's mom up to the the chapel of sacred mirrors when it was in the city. So we have may we may have crossed paths up there, Martin, not even known it. But, um, I remember like how, if anyone hasn't, I, I met Alex Gray while he was there that night. It was like on my birthday or something one year that he was doing on March 3rd. It's like a full moon or new moon or something like that, that they were doing. And, um, I remember I was really interested in him because of all the artwork that he had done for tool. And I was the, the outside of the, of the frames. I remember just as much as I remember the paintings. I remember him talking about like the resin molds or something yep. that he made for yep. that. And it starts from mm-hmm. just space and then it goes through like an amphibious state and basically DNA and then yeah, yeah. DNA and like every, every, it's every part of life almost that one goes through in the womb before we come out. And if you guys, we're not, I don't want to digress too much on Alex Gray and all that, but the reason we got into it because go ahead, Martin, you can finish up with, with your story. Well, well that's, that's where we met yeah. <laughs> and that's where it started. Yeah. I mean, really amazing. And that's, he, he was also, would you call him a mentor or a teacher with your type of art? Were you an understudy or like, how well, do you, what's proper? Well, I've only had the, uh, the pleasure of attending one weekend long workshop with him, but, uh, through is I've always been a huge fan of his work and, and became even more a fan after I met him as a person. Yeah. Uh, amazingly. So, um, Same. uh, and, and really since the, that point that you talked about where the shift, where I started actually teaching mycology there, which is a mm-hmm. study of mushrooms, and then later getting involved in the permaculture uh, program, as well as having started to rather than you know hang at the door to be one of the featured live painters at their events. Um, so it's been nice shifting into uh, sharing things that are uh, a little more uh, personal to me than than just being a big, I mean, big this, guy. <laughs> this is this is what's so this is what's yeah. So first of all, Martin, what are you six three four six five six five just shy. And and he's and he's got a twin brother. They look like those. They don't look like them, but just like a good reference point are those two crazy brothers with the dreads from the Matrix. That's kind of like Martin and Carl, like, but not. But they're like that crazy looking and um, but super gentle giants. But what's so cool about this is all the different type of art that we've spoken about. That's why I wanted to go deep into this, because when Martin talks about mycology, he's not just talking about he makes art out of mushrooms. He can carve. He can paint. He can sculpt. Carl, his twin brother, is like an amazing set designer, costume, costume maker for uh, movies and, and, and plays and things like that. And the reason that I went up to Cosm the second time was because I got something on the mailing list for music with a drum circle. And you can want to get into the, basically it's African drumming. Is it? Well, well, you know, when you have an open circle, sometimes you have people show up with different instruments, but, uh, for the two of us and our friends, actually, the and this circles back to the Earth Spirit community. A lot of times, one of the 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 really powerful and possibly uh, oldest rituals, where you know maybe we, we we're guessing people around a fire and maybe starting to make some noise. Well, they right? said that Stonehenge was actually like it's an amplification center. Like the more you would drum in the center, that the way that it's raised, it's laid out with the with the resonance. I saw like this whole study on it. Yeah. 
that they would actually, it was like a, like a disco <laughs> club, <laughs> the way that it would resonate the sound of the drums. But guys, we're not just talking like, like maybe something that you think about a bunch of people just showing up in a park and getting together, although it has that community like open feel. Like we're talking like legit studying and, and would you call it an ensemble? Well, or? well, now we have uh, transitioned to that. In fact, last night I, uh, I missed our, our gang uh, performing up in Hartford. Yeah. So, but yeah, like ridiculous jambe players and dune dunes and like complex rhythms, polyrhythms, crazy time signatures, just you're talking like it's it's mind bending and and like an honor to have learned that stuff and and with you and Carl and the rest of the crew. I mean, they're like fierce, fierce players. Maybe one day uh we'll do something down here or or find something in some type of cool context where that that would be appropriate, but um not to digress, Martin. Yeah, so it's, so it's part we, of the story. We get we get up to Cosm, I go up there for a drum circle. There's Martin and Carl. They're drumming away. And uh yeah, started talking from that day on. I started going up to play with them through music. We got involved, got more involved through art, and then um it just started to grow from there. Yeah. And then you started helping me literally grow by helping me on my property as we were uh, re-sculpting our the landscape and uh setting up our our, our gardens there. Yeah. Know, so. so when I was in building, um, which I still love, everyone knows that I love to build. So that's one of my favorite pastimes. We rented a, a machine up from West, two. Two, yeah, <laughs> up in Western Massachusetts, and uh, Martin had him drop that as pro- property. And man, we moved a lot of earth we in those couple of days. Of we did all the grading around this house because you couldn't put your garden in before that. And we built a retaining well, wall. Well, well, I had a garden, but then we had uh, Hurricane Irene, and yeah. I discovered that the. Uh, topography of the land basically funneled all the water right towards uh the uh, the apartment back door yeah and i was watching this pool slightly you know like creep slowly up and you know came just a half an inch of like coming into the this the the house which is you know i don't even have a basement it's just a yeah, slab and but i was like more importantly because of the construction of the home it really can't get that wet on the exterior right like it can't get saturated because of the straw right. inside yep. the walls yeah so Martin has one of this first, I'll, I'll let you explain it. Well, I wouldn't say first. It's not, it's actually really old tech. It's stuff that, uh, that, uh, that you just don't see a lot in the Northeast. Uh, so it's a post and beam. It was a first for your building house. department. <laughs> the building uh, department was probably like second. Second in the town. But they'd seen um, it before? Yeah, they'd seen it before. And I was very lucky to, uh, you know, when, when you, when you start talking alternative building materials and, and green building, uh, to banks, uh, uh, when you're looking for a mortgage, they start to look at you like you have six heads and, uh, and then, you know, say no right away. Um, and, but I was lucky enough to find a bank that was open to that because they had a, a model to, to, uh, look at, uh, there are a couple others in, in, in the area and one that they, they held the mortgage on they're like, well, this held up for 10 years. We can do another one. Uh, so it's basically, I mean, in you, straw bale is essentially building up straw walls and then casing them in plaster. And it's, uh, it's, it's a really great practice because it's intensely insulative. Uh, it's like R50 or better, which is twice mass code. Uh, it is using a waste product rather than, than killing a tree to uh, make some sheet goods. Uh, and, uh, it's, everyone's like, Oh, what about fire? That place to go up. It's, they actually perform far better than a, 
than a standard stick house, which has air cavities for all that to move through. Um, they'll, you know, and they're, they're again, there's an inch and a half of plaster on either side. So, uh, they're, they can be built load bearing, like the, the bales themselves can hold up a roof and other levels. But in this area where you can't be guaranteed to have a month of dry, uh, weather for the stacking and plastering and curing, it's most typically you put up a post beam frame and a roof and then basically encapsulate it in the straw and plaster. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful material and it's, uh, it's incredibly peaceful cause it's dead silent. No noise goes through the walls except mm-hmm. for where you got windows and doors. And so I've got this tiny, cozy, ridiculously efficient house, um, that, you know, feel pretty good about that. The most of that, all the timbers were within a, from not, about 20 feet, 20, sorry, 20 miles within the house yeah. and the straw the same. Uh, so it's using low and the clay even closer. Um, so it's using, local materials and not shipping exotic hardwoods out from, from other countries and whatnot. And yeah, but uh, man, I wouldn't call, I mean, it's, it's not that tiny. I mean, it's, it's so cozy and unique. It's all the, it, and what it is, is, I mean, how old, how long ago did you build that? Uh, well, uh, 2010 was yeah. when. And it's like what everyone's starting to pop out with now on dwell and all these homes that you're starting to see, like you said, it's this board and beam frame, um, or, or po- post and beam, post and beam yeah. frame. And then it's encapsulated kind of like this old, kind of like Adobe hut yep. look. And Martin did all these cool, what'd you call them? We, you did call a little, we just did sculptural elements in the walls because yeah. there was a point where the the scratch coat, which is the first first layer, hadn't been hadn't really cured far enough. And the builder was there for that week. And he's like, well, we can't put the final coat on. What do you want to do? He's like, I can... I can put in stairs or build shelves or whatever you want. Like I'm here, I'm here, do whatever you want. And so I, I worked with this guy, Andy Mueller of uh, green space collaborative, who uh, was the expert on the straw bale. Cause you know, you can read some books, but man, would I have overlooked a lot of details and it was just great to have someone who really knew the material. And uh, I would recommend anyone who's <laughs> slightly interested in that kind of stuff to find someone who knows what they're doing to, to work with you. Uh, but at the same time it was something that we could, uh, you know, we being, my whole community of friends were able to come in and lend a hand and, you know, throwing a lot of sweat equity into the structure. But, uh, you know, we decided we were going to spend that time making it interesting. And so there's, there's uh, spirals and little art pieces built into the walls and little, little fun features like uh, our friend. Uh, I think this is actually something that affected your plan here where you've got all sorts of stones in the yep. it's a little sacred geometry exactly. layout in there. Yep. Um, our friend Emily Sparkle, who was uh, at the time running a business in Spirit Common, uh, I went down and was picking some crystals up to stick in the wall before we sealed them up. And she got really excited and she was like, well, you need this and this and this and this. And I was like, whoa, hold up. And she's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I've got this. And she turned into this whole project where she created this whole sort of uh, uh crystal grid for all the different spaces with qualities that are right for, you know, nourishing in the kitchen, cleansing in the bathroom, calming in my daughter's room and yeah. so on and so forth. It's beautiful. So, yeah. What a, like, what a tranquil, tranquil place it is. So outside we went, we started doing all the grading and ripped out the old garden. And because I remember you we, like, well, I, I hauled all the dirt out of the way so we wouldn't mess with it. Yeah, exactly. it, was, it was good soil. It was good <laughs> like, stuff. Didn't and then we put the, those beds back. I remember yeah. right in, yeah. into the, like the design that you wanted it to be in. Yeah. So can you get a little bit into your whole study of, would you call it permaculture? permaculture. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, in 2006, 
I lived basically five miles further down the, the same road that I'm on now. And I had a friend from the West Coast come out and he was the one who basically plopped that term and also mycology in my head. And uh, we went for a little walk and I've always been, you know, passionate about the outdoors, which, you know, as soon as you love being outside and start recognizing what's happening to our environment, you become interested in sustainability and protecting it. I think that's like a natural progression. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to figure out what to do to do your part to protect that. And so this, uh, this man, Patrick Garrison and I went for a, a long walk where he, uh, he first, he said, yeah, I, I meant to bring you a gift. I was going to bring you mushroom spawn at the time. I was like, mushroom spawn what the hell are you talking about it's like yes wood chips inoculated with mycelium and you mix it in with other wood chips and then you grow gourmet and medicinal mushrooms on it and i scratched my head and immediately thought like hey could i grow mushrooms with my carving waste and he's like well probably and i just got fixated with the idea of like becoming one with my art by eating part of it right mm-hmm. and so that that uh that that stuck in that stuck in my head and then uh, through the rest of that walk, uh, you know, he introduced me to my first wildcraft mushroom species, uh, Tremites versicolor or turkey tail or Coriolis mushroom, incredibly common, incredibly potent medicinal mushroom. Uh, and it was actually one of the first that I did a major painting of. Uh, he also pointed me to the work of Paul Stamets, who uh, this was just after he wrote the book Mycelium Running. And um and he told me to pick that up. I did. And I was hooked. And I think most people who read it and start to look at the amazing work he's doing with mushrooms, uh, it's, it's really clear how, how powerful they are. And so, uh, so that, was, that was one piece that, that just got handed to me that made a big influence on my life and my work. And the other part of that conversation as we walked around the property for probably like two hours just chatting was mentioning permaculture. And I was like, well, what's that? He's like, well, it's this, uh, uh, it's, well, the term comes from permanent agriculture and permanent culture. And it was a design science that was, uh, initiated by, a uh, Australian man, uh, Bill Mollison, who sadly passed a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was joined by his student, David Holmgren, uh, who then became a collaborator as they developed the, the core of the teachings. But really, the, the essence of permaculture was Bill seeing, uh, identifying modern industrial agriculture as the single most destructive force on the face of the planet. And, you know, when you, when you hear that, you think it's agriculture, it's growing food, right? Yeah. But when you start to spend, you know, any time unpacking how we are doing that now. You know, we've got the majority of our produce grown on the other side of the country. Uh, we're the primary things that we're using to uh, grow our food are uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers, pesticides, and uh, herbicides that were developed. Basically, like we got all these leftover nerve gases. What else could we do with them, right? So biological war, or sorry, uh, yeah, chemical warfare became a found, you know, a, a primary element of how we make our food. Uh, and, and we just don't think about it. 
right? Uh, because we're, we're not in touch with the process. We're not, we're not there. Um, the, the trucking, the, we think about how, mu- how much fossil fuel is burnt moving food from place to place instead of growing it where people are. Uh, that's that's another huge element. That, is it true? I mean, is it true? I heard that I think it's even like flown to one side to like get something done, de- whatever, stemmed, seeded, whatever they're dealing with, and then trucked back. Like it's some crazy. Like, well, how we move food and and water like, is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it and made no sense. Here, here's the here's the best story. I have a friend who uh, for years was making money doing what he called camp trucking. They would drive trucks down to Florida, load yeah. up uh, uh, the belongings of rich kids who were getting flown up to camps up in the in the the Northeast, and then they would drive all their gear up there and dar- drop it off at the camps. One bag he picked up, right, was so heavy, uh, he that the thing tore open, and uh, a, like two cases of Poland Springs water, yeah, came falling out of this bag. When they're sending this kid to a camp, there was literally like two towns over yeah. from where the, where the water was from. Uh, but and we, think about that, <laughs> it, the plastic to wrap the bottle, the plastic that the water's in, the cardboard, that's the foundation for that, that holds it together. And then that it's getting heated in like cargo and yeah. it's just, oh man. It's just, I mean, that's one little thing. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, uh, and that's one we can kind of laugh at, but uh there, there are others that are a lot harder too. And uh, one of the things is that we're, you know, we're facing a huge rise in population. Uh, we're seeing shifts in people's uh, cons- different consumption habits. And, you know, as, as uh, third will or, or as what we, what may have been considered third world countries start to uh, grow, they're trying to emulate us. Right. And, and, you know, the Americans have, a ridiculous carbon footprint in terms of how much energy it takes to power each of our lives, right? And so uh, we we can get completely lost and in what do we do to fix it all? But just changing agriculture will, will to uh, localized organic would ha- has an, an amazing effect that is um, that will increase our own health. The you know uh, better food equals healthier people less uh net, less need for medicine and we're, we're you know we're gonna be dealing with a serious healthcare uh, epidemic as as populations increase in age and and size mm-hmm. um and so how do we how do we shift a system that's you know uh that's basically trying to make money off of people instead of take care of people and that's really what agriculture is doing now uh in terms of it's not its main main motivation is for, for most of it, not all, not all, mm-hmm. uh, is making money. They're less concerned with, with keeping the, the world's population fed. Um, even, even just in discussing this right here, how, how, uh, sort of circuit or how I'm getting into a maze right now in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, this is a great example why, uh, Bill Mollison didn't just say permanent agriculture, but permanent culture. Cause in order to fix agriculture, you can't just change the systems by which we're generating the food. It's also how we, the economics around it, the distribution. And so it really expanded from there to a, basically a holistic uh, way of trying to shift our, our culture. And so um, that's something that, uh, uh, you know, the, the study and practice of permaculture is something that's slowly 
growing and uh, it's something that is uh, intensely uh, potent design science and is something that really helped me uh, just think about how I could make the actions that I was capable of as someone who's doesn't have amazing uh, means, uh, but what can I do with my resources, with my life to, to make as strong an impact as I can on reducing my carbon footprint. And, um, and, and then, you know, as a teacher, um, I want to share that with others, you know? And so one of the goals with the house and the pro the, the site there is, you know, to, to have it be a really bizarre functional art object where people come and, uh, and see it. And suddenly that sparks discussion and, a discussion when someone comes and starts asking questions or gets inspired by something, they're going to be more open than when we come at someone from a aggressive, like you have to care about this because it's really important. Mm -hmm. You know, usually if you're doing it, something wrong, it's like proselytizing people are like, whoa, 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 back up. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you can do something, and this is actually where I feel like art and activism are, in are, are intensely closely aligned. Uh, you can do something to catch someone's attention. Like for instance, I was working on a painting at Cosm during one of their events. I was working on the portrait I did of Paul Stamets, right? And this, this guy came up to me and he's like, whoa, that's cool. Who is that guy? Is that Jerry Garcia? And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not Jerry Garcia. He's, well, who is it? And I'm like, it's Paul Stamets. Who's he? He's, you know, one of the world's foremost uh, mycologists. He's like, what's that? Study of mushrooms. Like, what's cool about that? And I started telling him a little bit. And I said, in fact, if you like that, why don't you come back here in April and do the intro to mycology workshop with me? And, uh, and then you'll, you'll have all your questions answered. And he's like, I think I'm going to do that. And he did. And then two years later, this guy wrote me and he's like, he's like, Hey, look what I'm doing now. This guy's gone way further into cultivation than I ever have. Wow. And it's just, it's just that, that, that power of like, suddenly if you catch someone's interest and they come to you asking questions, they're going to be way more open than if you start telling them, this is what you should think. Yeah. Um, oh, and just a like fun mention, right. Uh, that, that, uh, that, First mushroom painting, the Tramites Versicolor, uh, is actually uh, now owned by Paul Stamets. It's in, it's in his labs there. And I sadly haven't had a chance to go visit it in its new home, but I hope to at some point in the not too distant future. Yeah, what was the story behind that? How did he find you? Uh, on, on the web. Yeah. The web is a powerful tool, right? And it can help us make connections. And uh, uh, he's, he's, he's spoken at Cosm. Uh, I sadly missed him uh, that time, but my brother delivered a print of, the, of his portrait and you know, so, so what do you, when you teach this class, what's, what's, you've said a couple of times here uh, on the podcast that you're a teacher. So go into more depth about that because yes, you're a teacher like of at workshops and things like that, but that's also your profession. Yeah. So you, wh what do you teach? Where do you teach? What do you do? Well, currently I'm the head of uh, visual arts and technical theater at Pioneer Valley Performing Arts, which is a charter school in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And we're, uh, uh, we were founded in, the school was founded in 1996, the same year I started teaching uh, and uh, has been growing since. And it, it was founded on a number of uh, ph educational philosophies and one of, one of which being looking at Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences and the importance of, uh, of integration between arts and academics and other subjects that are traditionally taught separate from one another, 
right? But we don't live in a world where every where the interaction of all those things are separate, right? And uh, so we're, we try as much as possible to connect different disciplines to one another. And one of the things that we recognize for learners is you got students that may uh, consider themselves not good at something, right? But then if you can find a way of linking to subject matters where one, they may actually have some strength and some skill proficiency at, like I teach a art, a geometry and art class uh, where we use a few different sort of mathematical based systems to aid in the creation of artworks. So someone who may not be able to sit and do a still life of a flower uh, might be able to use these aids to make something visually pleasing. And suddenly they start to feel successful. I get to sneak in a little thing about geometry or later on when we're looking at some, some like John Cage's chance operations, like probability and statistics and stuff like that. And suddenly they, they have a, they have a little bit of uh, success, which then makes them feel more, uh, competent in that subject matter that they might have had a roadblock in so you know for the for the time since 2001 which i've been there i've been trying as much as possible to find ways to connect what i'm teaching in one discipline to another and and that goes for my artwork and my interest in permaculture and sustainability mycology all those things are are trying to use uh whatever way i can to connect with someone uh to help share the things that i think are important that the the math that you're talking about is it similar to a grid system that you're teaching people, or is it like way more complex than that? Well, well, we use a couple. We it's I I have a couple different units in there. Like I mean, one it, we start off with just some basic like here's how to create basic geometric shapes right using a compass and ruler. So people learn about how to draft out particular shapes without having to you know go on and that's something I, like i started studying myself more with a compass and ruler yep. and, I, and i had these sacred geometry books yep and um some of the math got complex real quick but that's something i'd love to have a workshop like that here if you're open to doing that and you know i don't know what we would need but set up a bunch of stations <laughs> for people and some compasses and pads or whatever but and then maybe even get some um some type of stencils or uh not stencils rather uh some type of color and um, be able to leave with something. I yeah. think that'd be awesome, awesome workshop. I heard you speaking with somebody prior to that, uh, prior today rather, saying that that you you've taught everything except like costume design because at, at the school, oh, right? Within, yeah, within my department, I've taught lighting yeah. design, sculpture arts, uh, drawing, painting. Uh, I also teach uh, sort of digital art because once you um, le- learning. Once you learn Photoshop, you're able to make really quick changes in in an image that help us teach design. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, the the there are a few there the elements and principles of design are a series of concepts that are taught pretty similarly throughout art education, and they give us a really good way of breaking down the different things that we use to make art, and then the different choices that you m- make as an artist, how that impacts and these uh, how we use the elements creates a series that can create a, some principles that are at, in interaction and these things are ideas that uh float from one media to the next to the next and the same choices that we make about color and line in a drawing uh could be applied to a costume that gives uh an audience a sense of the feeling of who the character might be before they ever Mm -hmm. possibly even open their mouths so you know the these it's really building the understanding of visual design and then Really, after that, you just got to learn how to use a different media, and you can move from one 
form of creation to the yeah. next and have the same foundation of, of visual understanding behind it. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, same with, uh, very much like music, very similar. So tell me about your, um, get, get more into like the drum circle for me right now. What's going on with the ensemble or the, the group that you play with? What are you guys working on? Where are you at with that? Well, uh, the, the group that we're talking about here is, uh, Kitty Mondi. We actually, uh, <laughs> strangely enough, we, we, and you played with us under that, that, uh, that name we had to shift. Uh, it was specifically due to Cosm's, uh, wanting to change from an open circle format to something that was a little more orchestrated, a little more, uh, skillful and, and, you know, it, in some ways there's a little bit lost by the person who just wants to show up and participate because that's one of the magic of, of of the drum circles. They start hitting on every downbeat. (laughs) Well, you know, we can, we can get, we can get snotty about the music. And I certainly have had plenty of people who are like, this is why we have really well-tuned djembe so we can drown out the person who shows up with the, with this untuned thing and just is having such a great time, but not listening to anyone else. Right. But if you, I mean, Honestly, I, I learned to play by watching and listening. Years I was that guy. I mean, I was on the end of the circle watching you guys for a while. That's how I know it. But, but watching and listening, yeah. right? That's key. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, that's how I learned to drum. I got to, you know, through uh, Earth Spirits Rites of Spring and a number of other fire festivals, uh, which like Fire Dance and Spirit Fire that were all about these sort of, I mean, it's hard to explain in a very short way, but they're sort of uh, environments where you never know exactly what's going to happen. It's just another way of celebrating spirituality through an art form. In this case, instead of visual arts like Cosm, we're talking about music and sound and movement yeah. and uh, and very open uh, ways of, of celebrating that. But it you definitely feel alive and you feel connected to one another when you make music and when you move together. That's amazing. And uh and so really it was just the, the fire circle and the drum circle that taught me to drum. And then it was nice to have places to share that with others like, like Cosm or the drum and dance that we, we had back at home. Uh, and it was really the need to have, uh, or shift the format from open to a smaller, more manageable noise level uh, that, that had us start to kind of form a troop. And then we started working on more and more complex breaks. And now, uh, I mean, you, while West, most of us have a foundation of West African percussion, it's not exclusive. And one of our uh, troop mates, Amanda Turk, is a phenomenal Middle Eastern percussionist. And, and uh, you know, we got uh, Carl's really working to try and integrate as many different melodics into some of what we do. We yeah. got everything from, you know, Aiden jumping up and playing Celtic uh, fiddle to... Uh, hand pans or Carl's and Goni or Owen busting out the guitar or Dan Frank and his hurdy gurdy, which is this yeah. wacky middle, uh, middle-aged in, European instrument that has just like, I love the, you know, haunting drone of it. Um, so they, we've, we've gotten a lot more complex and a lot more funky. And now as Carl's moving into doing electronic music production, integrating some of, some of that too. So uh, it's, it's been an interesting development to, be on the sidelines for i'm i'm by no means the driving force of that but i i show up and uh when they need someone to stand in the back and keep keep the the bass going i'll do that or if i slide up the front and make some noise with the djembe you know it's amazing it's fun it's amazing dude all right so 
why are you down here this week? This, this is, this is pretty cool, man. This is another side of Martin that I was just, when he told me about this guys, this is, I'm getting stuff set up. Hopefully when Martin comes down back in the summer with Carl, I can pull up a lot of these visuals and we could have it go live on our live stream too. So we can walk you through this stuff and it won't just be a, an, an auditory, an audible experience right now. But when Martin first showed me these battles that he does and the fighting that he does, I was like, I was blown away. I didn't, I couldn't even understand it. So I want you to visualize for everyone listening. I want you to visualize like a scene where like, where Brad Pitt is like coming to the lines and there's like the big Persian army or something like that. in one of those movies, (laughs) it's kind of like that, but this like, they go up to where it's in like Pennsylvania or something. And they go up to Pennsylvania and they, you guys set up like different houses, different camps. Well, right. And you're the glad, glad, what's your name? <laughs> how, how about I start with the foundation fight? Hold up, hold up, man. Right. And these guys, they, it's like they Martin is a knight, and he he fights like they fight with medieval weapons, and they legit. He's trained for how many years? Well, uh, I've really been back in this society for just over a decade. Dude, I started re- in ninety five. Yeah. I, I was very minimally involved. And it's disappeared ridiculous. For a decade, so. It's absolutely amazing to watch. Like legit battles. Like set up wars, clan on clan, like really like, go, all right, go ahead, Martin. Okay. So what, uh, what Gabrielle here is speaking to is my involvement in a, in a, in a awesome group of weirdos called the Society for Creative Anachronism. And it's a, what's now a worldwide organization of uh, medieval enthusiasts and really is actually just recently uh, expanded to anything pre 16th century or 1600, excuse me. Um, and, uh, it basically grew out of a, essentially a theme party that a bunch of UC Berkeley, uh, medieval history majors threw back in the seventies. And we're now getting close to hitting the 54th year of the society. And it's grown into a worldwide organization. And there are all sorts of different ways that people participate, uh, uh, but the thing that got me was the armored combat or uh, heavy list as we, we sometimes re- refer to there. Uh, essentially we use rattan weaponry. Rattan is like a, what, what they make the Papazon shares out of. It's like a solid bamboo kind of thing. And uh, you know, armor up from head to toe. Well, not really from head to toe, but uh, very well protected. And then we go you're, at it. But it's you're like, like legit, intricate, beautiful, armor and costumes and masks like to the nines like ready for that's why clay wants to go shoot it clay <laughs> well it's it's varied i mean like when people are starting out the the equipment yeah. can be pretty minimal and, and some people will intentionally create stuff that's using modern materials but passes what we call the 10 foot rule like looks reasonably acceptable from 10 feet away uh but when you go up you realize like oh that's not hardened leather that's uh abs plastic you know yeah uh, but uh, so we use we a mix of of uh, I mean some people have really awesome historically yeah. accurate kits and some people have you know like mine's a little more sport you know I got a really sexy Mermillo helmet but uh, uh, but basically you know we we play with uh, what the experience of you know fighting in armor with weapons and you know it's uh, basically like fencing with clubs but it's not just about touching someone it's about striking with enough force to potentially kill through chain mail or a helmet right yep. so uh it's it's uh very physically demanding it can be 
you can get some bumps and bruises, but it, of all the things I've done in my life, and you know, I've been someone who's uh, studied a couple different martial arts form. This is one that uh, lets people of different body types participate in a way where they can all find a way, a niche for, for what they do well to work and where you, we can do everything from, you know, one-on-one uh, singles tournaments to uh, smaller melees and scenarios to what you're talking about is the Pensick War, which happens in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania in the beginning of August every, every summer where uh, you have somewhere between 10 to 15,000 people gathered there. Um, and they're <laughs> for two weeks for two weeks. Um, there's, there's, there's the peace week, uh, where we're all setting up and hanging out and enjoying each other's company. And then, and then war starts on, on, you know, that Saturday of the opening ceremonies and, and, uh, it's a, it's a competition. It's not a reenactment. There, uh, are regions that compete against each other and the armored combat is, is only one function of that competition. Uh, but it's the thing that grabbed me because the, the field that is, you know, the 12, uh, size of 12 football fields has up to 2000 people on it in armor, uh, lined up on either side and, you know, can, uh, flags go up, people start screaming, pounding their shields, cannons go off. And suddenly you're a part of a huge army running at another one. <laughs> and, uh, to the point where the ground actually shakes. And then when the lines hit, there's just the most amazing clash and the sound and the smell of the rattan when it hits, uh, uh, other rattan. It's, 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 uh, something that gets in your bones and, it is one of the single greatest adrenaline rushes that I've ever had of anything I've ever done. And, uh, you know, it sounds crazy, but it's statistically pretty safe. I mean, a couple of people get, will get hauled off the field uh, with some assistance <laughs> every day. But if you imagine 2000 people playing football for two hours, that's yeah. actually pretty, that's not bad. Um, so we do a lot of, a lot of work to make sure that people are, uh, are equipped uh, in the right protective gear that people are qualified. Not you can't just walk on the field and do this. You have to show you have to qualify and show that you're not a danger to yourself or others. And um, and then we get out there and and compete in different scenarios. While there is also the uh, the other form of forms of martial combat of uh, the rapier fighters, which is much gentler, but it's no less of an what art is a, form. What is a rapier fighter? It's kind of like it's like fencing, but with a slightly heavier blade um i mean it's but we wear fencing masks but what what is what is is rapier the name of the weapon the weapon the blade so um and uh and then in addition to that we have people doing archery thrown weapons uh at some events even equestrian uh work and then beyond that there's also the ton of people who who never do anything martial but you know, participate in the arts and science activities where people do ridiculous research into uh, historical arts and crafts and how they were done and, and recreate them with amazing, uh, amazing uh, accuracy. In fact, yesterday I was up here to attend uh, an event called Mudthaw. Uh, and also as a, in addition to the usual tournaments outside, it was uh, what was called the Kings and Queens uh, arts and science champions where people who, uh, 
you know, thought they had a shot would enter their particular arts and science project. And one of the people who was selected as the, essentially as the Queens champ, uh, was doing some textile arts, some, some fiber arts to the point where she made her own carding tools out of bone, uh, and built the loom, uh, from scratch. So, you know, uh, it was uh, it, it's pretty impressive that what's level, the loom, Martin? Loom is what you weave on essentially. Oh, wow. So what, what it was holds, a lot of bone. Well, no, the carding tools were what <laughs> we used to basically like comb out the the, yeah. the fiber. Didn't and, you say somebody did something crazy like the Vikings and melted down grass? Oh, we oh no, not grass. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, yeah, people have recreated uh, smelters and basically like broken rock and started with, you know, iron ore and then adding to it and yeah. forging blades the way someone would have in, in the days of the Vikings. And uh, it's the, the level deep, of craftsmanship right? is, is ridiculous. Um, and uh, there was another pretty- another friend of yours. I don't remember his name, but he would make some really amazing leather goods. He make like goggles and like all these types of bags and uh, just the craftsmanship was, it's really, I yeah. mean, this it's, uh, it goes deep, man. It's, it's so, so creative. It's so refreshing to watch and see this yeah, stuff. You're, you're, you're getting in the steampunk land. So, yeah. uh, which is definitely, you know, there's a lot, well, uh, there's a lot of overlap with the society. I mean, once people get interested in, in interesting stuff, uh, there, there's so many different flavors and a lot of them overlap. Like we were talking about earlier today about, you know, what we do, uh, the SCA armored combat has, there are a number of people who participate in the ACL or armored combat league, which, uh, has just recently had a, uh, a show on the history channel called uh, night fight and where it's, it's a different, different, different rules, different structure and, and pretty, pretty intense. Um, and, but one of the, so, but actually mentioning that, like, when you get people who are interested in something weird, there's like nothing that's going to bond people quicker than having a weird hobby. Yeah. And so and a weird it's a friend that likes that hobby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so then we go to this place where we have 10,000 of those people. So it's a, you know, the event itself is, you know, the, the martial activity is a small chunk of the day, but the rest of it is just an amazing gathering of people who are there to celebrate being alive and being interested in weird stuff together. And, and, uh, how how people engage in that event varies greatly, but um, it's something where when people show up, they say welcome home, and people joke about going on a town run that's going to last them fifty weeks until they're back. Yeah, you know, um, and uh, so there's there's a there's an aspect of that event that that I really like, where for many of us, our day to day lives are very comfortable, are very we go through this sort of experience where we know what we're going to do. We go, we wake up, we have our routines, we go to our job, we come back and whatever we do until it's time to go to bed and wake up and do it again, where that often doesn't leave us feeling really excited and inspired. And to, uh, for me going out on that field and feeling the rush of adrenaline, you know, both the excitement of going into something and suddenly, you know, they're, you know, we know we're safe, but when you're being overwhelmed by a unit, that's like, three times your size or you're just about to get run down by there's some guys on that field that make me look small. There's some monsters out there. It can be scary, right? But to go through that roller coaster of experience and then, you know, to be a little sore, a little, little battered and then go down and, and hang out with your camps, connect with others. Uh, and then, you know, the nighttime we, we, we drum and play there around the, 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 the fires there and people are dancing and connecting and, and, um, and, some of the encampments are very beautiful and creative. 
and uh, you you just get to be you in like it. set up a yeah. little city for two for weeks, two weeks, right? Yeah, I mean our our camp includes a a, a multi level Greco Roman style temple structure where it has this beautiful space overlooking Cooper's Lake uh, up above and down below. All our camp infrastructure hides our pantry and sink and uh, shower and also our bathtub, which mm-hmm. is right by the lake. Cause you know, our, our, our household patron, uh, Ajax, he's like, this is my vacation home. I spent two weeks here. This is my vacation home. I want a hot tub. And so he, you know, goes on Craigslist and finds a, you know, cast iron tub for sale in Pittsburgh and, you know, they drive down, pick it up. And that lives in a trailer for most of the year. And then we haul it out to the edge of the lake and, you know, uh, to, to to go through those different experiences and and you know of uh, of excitement and terror of laughter of joy of connecting with people yeah and then you know end your night looking out at a landscape illuminated by t- torchlight and stars um, it's a very you feel very alive yeah. in those two weeks and uh, it, it helps carry me through some of the doldrums of other parts of the the school year that can sometimes feel like all I'm doing is waking up and going to work and going back and going to sleep you yeah know? totally. Um, I think what's cool about like where you can find different uh, correlations to it is like similar when we train jujitsu here, like when you tap, basically if I tap, I would have died or I would have had a limb broken. Like that would have been it. Like I would have lost and it's a chance to kind of like start again. So the adrenaline rush comes from the fact like it's constant rebirth and I guess it can be similar or likened to like when you get hit, whatever the point system is called, and you, what do you do? You say, I'm out, or you're like, yep. heed, you, 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 uh, heed. Well, you can, if you basically can acknowledge the blow, you can say, yep, good, All right? And, and if it, you're in a, a place where you can just step out of the way, you can do that. But usually you fall down and you cover up because they will keep running right over. Like, oh, really? we have to, we have to learn how to die defensively and whatnot. Cause if you're in a, a bridge scenario or where a line connects, they'll, They'll keep moving. And you get trampled. Um, yep. And that's actually where, where the most dangerous places are, right? If some huge person falls on you while your leg's sticking out on top of someone else, it's an easy way to snap it. So, but, <laughs> but anyway, you, you started mentioning, um, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, a lot of people will refer to it as a sport. I think of it as a martial art. I mean, yeah. and it's been shown by, you know, how people, they're pretty capable at swinging a stick uh, after that. And how long um, is the stick you fight with? Well, I, I use varied forms, but the, the longest the, one, well, the longest is a, is a nine foot spear, but that's just is thrusting. That, but is that seven kind of as half. long as what that one was? I think that's eight feet. Uh, I, I use a seven and a half foot. But uh, the one I hit you with today? Yeah. <laughs> was that about eight feet? Yeah. I have yeah, this, so I, have, I have this eight foot mobility stick that I was just messing around with Martin. I was showing him up on the mats today. We're in the studio and I've never swung a stick that long at somebody. So I was just like, just playing with Martin and I took the end of the stick and I swung it. And I stopped where I thought it would stop, but it was not even close to not hitting him. <laughs> but like to be able to control something of that length and mm-hmm. swing it around, I mean, that takes some real force. And Jesus, man, it's, it's, it's an art. It's definitely an art, man. And it's, as someone who's come from different martial arts backgrounds that have very strong uh, energetic or philosophical underlayers, most people in the society don't really engage in that part of the game. Not, I'm not saying no one does, but it's not something that's part of the core of how it's taught. But for me, there are a lot of things that you learn very clearly when you're on the field that uh, where your head is at has a huge effect on how you function. Yeah. Man. So when you're in that, those kind of, especially in the huge melees, like 
the there's one you have to have an interesting visual mindset where you have to be really focused on what's right in front of you but you also have to have a awareness of everything that's in in your uh in around you and uh so it, it actually trains you to move through the world in a way where you're taking in your whole surroundings and you're you may be focused on the thing that's right in front of you like if you're driving but you know building that awareness of everything that's going on in the total environment helps i mean helps me how i move through the you know even the, just the halls of my school um and you know uh man does it take the uh the fire out of uh situations of conflict in other parts of the world where totally. you, someone's just arguing over some petty little thing and yeah. you're like not worth it nothing yeah, exactly to um and um you know the other thing is just how you approach your energy and your emotional state if you're if you're in one of those situations and you're acting out of ego because you want to win, you're at a disadvantage. If you are angry at someone, you're not thinking clearly and you're at a disadvantage. If, uh, if you're afraid, right, you're nervous, uh, you're at a disadvantage. You're already prepping yourself to lose. So having this sort of neutral mind state where you're taking things in and acting uh, with, with control of your emotions, it Honestly, it's, it's something that helps me be more centered and more peaceful as I move through my daily life. Totally. That's a great explanation as to how I feel also about jujitsu and, and yoga and just training, just how do you take your practice off the mat and bring it there. Um, and that, that's a great segue into like the art, like transformation. So circle back to Cosm, circle back to what we've done. Yeah, there's all these, these cool artistic things, but there's also transformational work there's also awareness and i'd like if you could please like expand on your experience with transformational work as as far as like how you feel art or um what types of what types of things have helped you in your life up to this point find breakthroughs in awareness for yourself or find find a way to um I guess express yourself more also through your art and, and, and find out what that expression is that you'd like to do. Okay. So I mentioned earlier that art was one of the primary vehicles for me to kind of observe and translate my, the, my world, whether it's the world around me or within me. It definitely as a, as a young, fairly introverted uh, child and later teen really gave me a, a way of, sort of working out some of what was going on inside of me in a way that I think I <laughs> would have really struggled with if I didn't have that um, as a vehicle for, for, for taking some essentially meditative time for myself. And it also helped me communicate things I feel like in a way that I couldn't find words for. And I still think that that's an important part of art is that especially if you're, we're starting to talk about, anything that's uh, spiritual, right? Um, the essence of that is, is something that's beyond matter. And uh, e- even words where we're trying to describe or talk about it, I feel like sometimes brings some things that can, could be potentially very ethereal into a very concrete form because a, a, the system of language it only allows so much for us to describe this. And I feel like sometimes art can communicate something or at least I'm not a good enough wordsmith to create something with words that could communicate what I can 
with an image. Yeah. Um, and so that's probably a, an, a, an important place that art has played in my life. Now, we've also spent a lot of time talking about permaculture and food. And, you know, I didn't really intend to take up gardening when I moved out where I did. But, you know, that's become an important part of, uh, of, of my my life and i would say almost my my spiritual practice or or you know like your yoga can be different things other than the asanas and whatever routine you have right um so just having something that requires me to be outside periodically to have my earth uh, the connection with it um to physically work with the the ground to uh nurture that which feeds my food which feeds me and uh and to to be really connected to what's actually just the source of my life what keeps me alive sustains me i think that is a a really important part of my own spiritual practice and as you start to look at ecology and connectivity uh understanding how many things in our web of life are so intertwined in a way that if we're if we don't see the natural world around us it's really easy to uh to just get lost in the human constructs and to forget the essential connections of a very diverse system that is on this planet and um so that's uh that's an important part of my own internal being and uh I think that as you as you start to look at as an artist to look at nature, there are a hu- there are a number of core patterns that re- repeat themselves all over, and it's something that in permaculture that we even spend time doing pattern recognition, where we look at what shape is something, right? Uh, and there there are these different forms that essentially, if you see. You know, whether we're talking, okay, so the patterns of nature include things like uh, circles within circles, nets, webs, branching, waveforms, clouds, uh, uh, scatter or explosion. Uh, Spiral. Spirals, absolutely. Um, the overbeck jet, which is uh, sort of like toroidal forms. Like there, there are these things that we see pop up all over nature within our bodies uh, and in the universe, even beyond just our 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 planet, there is, there are these things that are just happening over and over and over. And wherever you see the same shape, it's serving the same energetic function. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, as an artist, I find that super intriguing and, and love playing with, uh, abstract pieces that are just playing with those patterns and, and thinking about the way they manifest in the world around us. And so that's another little time where sometimes I'll be doing something that's an abstract piece that may look like there's no order or no system to it, but really internally it's, for me, it's just a, t- a time where I'm doing something physical as an expression of the things I'm thinking about. And, you know, I don't know that they're communicated uh, that accurately to the person who's the onlooker, but I'm hoping that some of the essence of it may be transferred to, to those who look at the work. Can you expand on the, the shapes wherever they're found are doing the same energetic function? Did I say that properly? Yeah. yeah. Back to you. Uh, so you threw in spiral, right? Uh, if we look at 
like what's something that you see? Well, the, in- sp- the spiral, I just like Fibonacci sequence and then like the shell, let's say. Right, shell. Okay. So a, a great one is the, the Nautilus shell, which, yep. which fits that, the golden spiral, right? Yep. Um, if we look at the Nautilus, right, um, it's a long creature that's curled up in this, this shell. And one of the reasons that it takes that shape is that if you were to stretch that, that animal that's in there out straight, right, in a line mm-hmm. and build a shell around it, it would take a lot more material. It uh, also allows for gradual expansion, right, when something forms in a spiral. So when we, when we turn that, when we flip that into design, like where we start to want to actually use that, so a spiral, right, it's about uh, containing a lot within a small space, uh, one of the signature permaculture things is the herb spiral. Uh, it's a, basically you take a circular plot of land and you build a slow ascending spiral up to a central point and use rock or whatever to keep it within that shape. And what happens is that by creating an ascending spiral structure, you've actually created more planting space than would exist on the footprint that the herb spiral is planted. But in addition to that, you've also created varying microclimates where the the south-facing slopes are going to get a lot more sun whereas the, the north side is going to get less the area at the top is going to drain more than that at the bottom so different herbs like different niches some prefer you know moist soil or dry soil high sun mixed shade you pick those climates based on what those plants are so you create something that increases what you can fit into it and also creates some more dynamic uh, conditions for the, the plants. So that's, that's one of the, one of the ways that we can translate something that we see in nature into, to a little design device that can make a huge, huge difference. Right. How about like, um, what about the pine cone? Uh, what would you call that? Well, okay. So, so a pine cone is a couple different things. Cause if you look at it from the top, it, it, it's, it forms spirals. Mm-hmm. Um, and also scales is another one. They allow for uh, flexibility and movement in something that's protective, right? Interesting. Um, so, you know, a, a pine cone is something that's basically creating a small enclosure while seeds are developing then is able to uh, essentially to try to protect them until they're ready to, to fall, right? Well, what about, um, you said explosion. So uh, explosion would be where things are moved in a, a random pattern and uh, uh, like a seed popping bingo. Or- right. And, you know, if you think about a seed, right, if every seed were to fall directly straight down, right there, there, the population is never going to move. Right? right. And so plants have, you know, when you start looking at, at the design of, of plants and how they function, you know, it's, it's, it's so easy for some people to think of them as non-animate creatures, but they're really, you know, if you, if you, you know, take once one read of Michael Pollan's Botany of Desire and you realize how much their, how intelligent their design is. And, and I say that not in, <laughs> in the intelligent design, like God created them that way, but um, how evolution has created uh, strategies for them to optimize their uh, dispersal and, and essentially their populations whether that's manipulating us to do their work for them or doing them on their own. So an explosion would, would be something that's in an erratic pattern, right? So even seed dispersal uh, wants to try to get as far away from, from the plant as possible. And also not just in the, all in the same place because 
you know, landing on a rock or a small patch of, of bad soil is not going to be advantageous for future populations. More different, different direction, different space, more chance of, mm-hmm. of success for the, for the future generations. Uh, other examples, right? Um, lobes are another one, right? Lobes are about increased edge. Uh, and so if we see lobed structures, they're kind of like, how can enough, how, the, the plant or organism is creating a lobe so that lobe can interface with as much airspace or other space with the smallest amount of material. How do we translate that into design? Uh, Keyhole Garden is a great example where instead of doing rows, right? So even just the shape of our gardens, right? We create these things that provide efficient pathways for the ways we like to, to move, right? But we wind up sacrificing a lot of our potential planting space to the area that we have to walk through, especially if you're talking a single row. You're losing basically half of your ground to just move in through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like wide rows with keyhole entry points where you're able to uh, have a larger bed that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to reach the center of. And then you create these little keyhole-shaped entry points where you can work the whole area around that. And in the end, you wind up losing far less of that potential planting space to the access points than you would if you were to just draw straight lines. Is that like the one that we laid out for you? Uh, Where we have like the... Well, uh, the center point. Yes. The center point is absolutely (laughs) a keyhole design where you have uh, one round circle with one line going into the middle and then a round space in there that you can sit and work. It's a kind of a small keyhole, uh, but... uh, but there, you, you don't even have to just have that one single shape. It can just take a whole planting area and then just like stick these little pathways and branches in, and almost like, you know, I, I, one one source I read said that it was looking at kind of how lung tissue maximizes the the volume of of interaction of uh, tissue and airspace in a in a very compact whole area, right? Mm-hmm. And so we can take a we can take a plot of, of land and then figure out how how many of these little sort of intrusion points we have to, to come in to, to just be able to reach everything with losing as little space as possible. So uh, that's that kind of thinking is going to become critical when we have to get food closer to populations and suddenly, you know, we, the, we, we can't think about the hundreds of square miles in uh, whatever Western state where we can just plow it, you know, the whole field and seed one monocrop on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those, those patterns help us learn from nature and mimic its wisdom and, uh, do things a little more efficiently. Beautiful teacher, right? The most, we were talking about that. Um, Martin, so with regards to the, the artwork, when I, this weekend, a couple times you had said uh, illumination or uh, illuminary artwork. And I think we, and when you're referring to it, I think you were referring to, was it medieval? Yeah. So, uh, medieval illumination, the, the term comes from the, the gold leaf that was often used to decorate these, uh, essentially what it would basically be illustration where you have little pictures or imagery to go along with text. Um, and, and the shimmering aspect of the gold is where they got the term illuminate to illuminate to. Okay. So. Not to be confused with, and maybe I made this up in my own mind, but luminary artist is that? Have I heard Alex Gray and your type of 
artwork referred to as is well alex gray is usually categorized in the visionary arts visionary right uh but uh you know to uh illuminate is sort of the next step right right visionary sees something and so i think i made it up because a lot of a lot that's what i would consider your artwork it's very it's very like there's always this light, this halo. There's something that's always you, you. You always put something this this depth to it, to where it's like lit up. It's illuminating. I mean, you're one of my favorite artists. That's why I have your artwork all over here. Um, and I know that there's there's a strong message, and that's kind of what we just spoke about for the last hour and fifteen minutes. That's embedded in all of that. But can you talk about that technique a little bit that I'm speaking about to where like over here you put like these lines or you'll, you'll do like that white outline to make everything look like it's glowing there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I so turned he, just turned, he turned around to point out the painting. And, and so, uh, yeah, I can totally talk about that technique. Well, uh, so one like, of the, like what the why behind it? The why the behind tech, it? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, the, the why behind it is kind of funny. Like I, a, a lot of my art style over the last eight to nine years has been dictated by my limitations of time of space. I don't, you know, one of the, one of the things I did really well when I designed my house is for, you know, the, the, the last chunk of time I was at my last home, I was doing a mapping project where I was looking at my habits, like how much space do I need? How do I move? What hours do I do what at? And, you know, those are good things to do is to know your habits, your needs. If you're going to design a home, like design something that works for that. But what I failed to anticipate was uh, the growth in my art career. And so uh, one of my big challenges that I'm dealing with now is the fact that I have totally inadequate working space for my painting. I take over our kitchen table constantly and keep a little little easel off to the side. And it's totally intrusive in our in our common living space, but it's also nice because, you know, when I've, when I've been working there, it's not like, uh, you know, separate building it's that definitely I drive off to and then I'm, that I'm, uh, you know, not running away from my kid or whatnot. When it's time to go create, we can set up next to each other and work together. Uh, but the, you know, can't, can't do oils when you're in a very small, uh, well-sealed, <laughs> uh, home and I want to be poisoning myself for my kid. And, um, so the other thing is time. I don't always have as much time as I'd like to work on a piece. So a lot of these happen layer by layer by layer because I'm like, oh, I got a half hour. I can do a glaze on this piece and then come back with another layer of line work and whatnot. And my training as a theater artist, uh, when you're doing a huge drop, you can't you can't nitpick every little uh, every area and then move to the next. You have to kind of treat the whole thing so that when it's time for you, you to pull it up and put it up on the stage, that it doesn't matter it, how far you got with with one part. It's, it's complete crap if the whole thing hasn't been developed. So you got to work the whole thing step by step by step. So a lot of that training as a theater artist had me doing things like working with principles of optical mixing, of glazing uh, as a way of changing colors and that that really affected my paint work because of how I would be like, okay, well, I can do a little glaze or a little layer here. And so I built things up and and knocked them down. And it was funny, after hanging out at Cosm for years, I had someone come up to me and was like, have you studied the Mish technique? 
And, you know, that was a, a term and a technique uh, that was really popularized by Fuchs and Ernst Fuchs and a lot of uh, now there's a, there's a great, uh, the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art where they're, uh, a number of people who are in the visionary arts movement are playing with that technique. And I was just like, I'm just doing glazes. I don't have a fancy name for it. <laughs> like, so, you know, the, the, the theater arts background taught me, you know, the same thing that other people were studying based off of his, uh, his ideas of how the old masters created the depth and luminosity and, and complex colors. And some of these, it looks like it's glowing. Were. It looks like the picture's lit up. Yeah. Well, uh, Part of, because uh, because a light, light can only reflect, the, sorry, the painting can only reflect light in the room. It can't create it. Well, until, until we start working at digital media, but but uh, a traditional oil or acrylic painting is only going to uh, be able to give you the sense of light if there's the complement to that, which is shadow and mm-hmm. darkness. So you have to have areas of the piece that are dark enough for that area that is not to feel like it's, it's popping. glowing, right? So this this piece that you're gesturing at before behind you definitely has a lot of shadowed space. And you know, you just you know don't want just voids. Um so there's a a lot of I try to have a lot of detail and texture in areas that may be very subtle, but so that, <coughs> you know it when you get up close that it doesn't look boring and uh hopefully the person who chooses to put the a painting on their wall might discover things hidden in it a few years after it's been there and and you know still find things that they are discovering in it that's my personal hope i find stuff in your paintings all the time after i get out of the float tank or i walk down the hallway <laughs> and i just sit and stare at them and i'm like whoa like a couple i don't know how long ago it was but there's like a genie that i told you it's behind one one of those that what's that one with the, the the three spots? It looks like the chakras that are lit up on it. The one that's at the end of the hallway. Oh, over that's there. that's a that's a that was a depiction of uh, mitosis of uh, cell division. Yeah, and there's like a there's like a man or there's a there's a figure in the background that like pops out. Totally unintentional. <laughs> yeah, I'll show it to you when you leave. It's amazing. Yeah. You sure we're talking about the same one? Uh, not far, not far left. Far right. The the blue. Far right. The Oops. blue. Oops. Excuse me. Sorry. Total wrong one. Yeah. Uh, there, there was actually supposed to be a slight indication of a figure, yeah. but that was actually that was a piece that I did at one of the Earth Spirit events called Twilight Twilight Covening, and that's a sort of a fall complement to the Rites of Spring, which uh, basically happens over Memorial Day weekend every year. This year, they we just cel- celebrated the fortieth, and I've been involved in the organizations for you know since twenty years ago, and really, I mean they're. They're the ones who kind of drew me to the side of state and I wouldn't be living the life I, I was if I hadn't connected with that event and the community there. But Twilight Covening is kind of like a fall focused uh, prepare for the dark times complement to the celebratory aspect of Rites of Spring. And people break into groups that they work with for the whole weekend uh, with totally different focuses. And so, um, and I've done a number that have been really exploring different ways of using visual arts, either as a sort of spiritual or ritual practice, uh, either collaboratively or how we might use that as individuals as, you know, much like the mission of the, the uh, Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, how can we use visual arts as a way of uh, complementing our, our own personal spiritual or ritual practice. And so that picture really was, almost very direct translations of things that I saw through the weekend. 
Uh, there was a opening. One of the things that opens the event is a releasing fire. You know, we ask people to be very, very present for those three days. And, and so the Friday night when people land, the, the, one of the first things is going down to this beach. It's held at one of the most beautiful corners of, uh, of Massachusetts with, with some of the most dramatic views, save some of the coastal regions, uh, right off the Appalachian trail, 110 acre Lake. And, there were these five fires that people were dancing and moving around well three and then they would move towards one of these two at the ends where they would put their object or symbolic thing of what they needed to let go of so they could be fully present and uh open at this event and i was watching this from a distance and then watching the stars uh reflecting on the lake and the and the the horizon actually shows a reflection of the the physical landscape that you see from that view. And uh, you, you can see the fires in the, in that configuration. And then that's also reflected above. And, you know, given that there was a lot of interaction with other people, you know, there, there, and there's also, you know, once we put something that looks vaguely human in something, or even just the sense of a, a humanoid figure, we often think of it as some sort of a being, right? And if you make something that's not very, clear to identify it's easy to feel like it's some sort of spirit and and definitely there there that was a night where i felt like the collective energy of this i mean it's an annual ritual that happens that that i feel like it's constantly building power like repetition there's power and repetition there's power and repetition right the more we do something the more you do your same your your yoga practice you're gonna you're gonna it's gonna be more potent for you yeah um and Anything that we repeat is with intention <laughs> and not just going through the, through the, exactly. through the motions is going to build an energy and a, and a being about it. So yes, that, that one was very intentional. <laughs> so I take back that. Yeah. Sorry. We it's ve- it's very page. subtle, very subtle. It took me a minute to see it like a year. <laughs> <laughs> but there are other things as you explore there, you'll, you'll see things that, that were just direct observations that I had, you know, the next morning, I walked out in one of the docks. Uh, it was an overcast day, light rain dripping. One of those days where you can barely feel it on you. And yeah. it certainly wasn't even making you wet, but you could see it on the water. And so you'll see the 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 ripples, the the circles within circles and the roots and whatnot. And uh, so that was, that was just, you know, a visual translation of what I was experiencing into a sort of semi-abstract piece. Yeah, man, it's gorgeous. So... You started to touch on the transformational work that I was talking about that I was asking you with regards to people like being near the fire, putting a, an object into the fire um, that they can let go of. So there's so much thought process that goes in, I want to say intention. There's so much intention that goes into the paintings of, um, of transformational work. And so if you guys want to read more about it, Martin, what's your... What's, What's if the you, best uh, way if from, you go go at, to thebridgebrothers.com. Yeah. And that's you'll see everything there. And it's got my my brother's work and uh you I mean, since we spent some time talking about music, I think he's got a link to his his SoundCloud, which is his early explorations. Uh and you know, we can also uh you know they're they're uh, in our social we have stuff on social media and we make announcements about when we're showing work or when we're out and about and or when we're playing music so if you're interested in checking out one of our shows those are those you you hunt down either the bridge brothers or or martin and carl bridge on on social media and and uh yeah that's a good way to see what we're working on and what we're involved in 
on social media though, it's your um, it's just like Martin Clark Bridge or Martin Bridge, right? Well, uh, so Martin Bridge Art, yeah, or the Bridge Brothers on Facebook, yeah. uh, and Martin Bridge Art and uh, Carl Dot Bridge uh, on Instagram. On Insta. so. Yeah, both amazing artists. Hopefully, Carl come visit again soon. I miss him, so we'll get him down here. Hopefully, in the summer, something like that. You guys said, and um, what's next, Martin? Like, what do you got planned? What's what's oh, this, ne- what's next from you? Like, what's your next goal <laughs> that you want to declare that you're going to be doing? Uh, goal uh, or, or well, art or like painting? Yeah, or, well, this is what, a, do got, what do you got coming up? I've got a. I mean, uh, in terms of immediate, the the this, I'm shaking off the uh, the winter hibernation really fast, and I'll be I'll be at a lot of different events. Uh, we've been talking about Cosm. I'm teaching a a weekend long intensive with my buddy Alex Dor. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, go sort of deep into the magic of mushrooms with him and well, that's in May. Yeah, uh, guys, when Carl's talking about the, or, uh, when Martin rather is talking about the magic of mushrooms, magic, uh, mushrooms are magical and there are magic mushrooms that like have psychedelic effects and, um, properties to them. But what Martin's referring to here is cleaning up the environment with like oil, oil spills and planting mushrooms that will like filter and, and putting mushrooms. He, he makes art installations up in, in this place out of spores and logs. I'll let you elaborate. Well, uh, to circle back to the, the first thing that actually got me, I think maybe caught my attention about doing anything with mycology was the idea of like, Oh, I could, I could recycle my carving waste and, yeah. and then connect with my art that way. And then I, I immediately thought, well, why should I do this out of waste products? Why not, you know, have the have the work brought to life by the element that's tearing it apart from the inside? And so I've done some some sculptures that I've not uh, inoculated with mushroom mycelium, not as many as I'd like, but uh, uh, they're hard to find new homes for, and they're hard to display because they're they're picky about when they want to show and when they want to flush. You can't say, okay, I have a show now, mushrooms. Please uh, make sure you're in full bloom while you're on display at this gallery here. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so it's harder to share that work with a bigger audience other than, than pictures. So I've definitely been spending a lot more time with, with stuff that can reach, that can, it's a little easier to share with people. So, but uh, um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's one, one, yeah, the, I mean, you mentioned cleaning up the environment. That's a huge piece, cleaning up our own environment. Yeah, uh, I think you might know a, a little bit about medicinal mushrooms yourself from from yeah. experience. Yeah, and uh, and just you know, there. I mean, the the I believe one of the facts that got me so hooked on medicinal mushrooms is the fact that I think it's the was it reishi mushroom is eighty five percent the same DNA composition as us. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but uh, the kingdom of fungi is far closer to us than than any other. Right, uh, right. To the point where there 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 are scientists who are exploring the concept of a of a sort of a super kingdom that would connect us. Right, right. The if you that like if the you, first whatever crawled out of the water to become human actually ate this mu- was was eating on mushrooms to thrive to. Well, the. How how that happened we don't know, but we're know, just man. we Come see on. the similarity, right? <laughs> no, I'm Mu- mushrooms they they breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide, just like yeah. we do. Uh, if you look at the f- the flesh of mushrooms, it's often very similar to 
our own in some ways, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons chicken of the woods is called that, in addition to the, you know, it tastes like chicken when you cook it up, uh, is that when you, when you open it up, it's got like you pull the thing open, it's it looks like cooked chicken. It's got a weirdly similar texture. So um, there's definitely connections. How those formed at what time in evolution? I don't have the answers for, but come on, Martin. Yes, you do. You were there. <laughs> I was there. We've got them. We know. The next episode. Yes. Listen up. We're going to break down the secrets next time. But I think that would be cool to do next time is to, or if you've been open to, like we can even do Zoom and recording stuff, Martin, and I'd love to elaborate um, and go further into depth about your mycology and, you know, just have like a call or something or a Skype call or a Zoom call 30 minutes to an hour, like, and just Zoom and just uh, focus on this type of stuff so we can get folks up to speed and get more of your knowledge out. Yeah. And other things that are going on in, in my world, my brother and I are going to be getting out to a bunch of events over the summer and doing some, some art making and installations and whatnot and, and connecting with new people. And, and, uh, you know, I was sharing with you the other night that, you know, I have this friend who's gifted me the, uh, the, tr- the trailer. So if I, uh, if I get my act together, you know, I might actually have a studio space that I can yeah. make a mess in without having to clean it up for dinner time. So that's yeah, it's uh, bittersweet so as an artist, any artist I'm sure can, I mean, having a space to work in that you don't have to get up and drive to when the muses call in the middle of the night. And that's when they call. Yeah, I wake always. up at like 3am and I'm like, I know I could go down and paint for a little while or I can stare at the wall for an hour and a half. Yeah. I'm going to be awake for that. My time. wife gets so mad at me because <laughs> she's like, I can't sleep. And I'm like, come on. Hon. And she's like, I need, I, you're rustling around down there, but hey, I'm, man. Qu- I'm quiet. Yeah. It's different with music. <laughs> <laughs> the guitar, and the paintbrush are different. Yeah. But, um, yeah, man. So, Martin, thank you so much for coming it's down. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's me. always great to see you. And I hope you come back really soon, man. Thanks for getting on here with me. Right on. Peace, brother. Peace.